0: But when I really thought long and hard about this, I was like, you know, if I'm 70, 80, 90, whenever I slow down and I'm reflecting back, am I going to be okay with that? And I decided absolutely not, um, like a strong no. And then I said, well, what would it look like if I was reflecting back on this? And I was said, you know what? That was life well lived. Mm. And- I realized that I wanna be able to look back and say I left it all on the field. Like, whether it was kiteboarding, whether it's fitness, whether it's you know running this company, whether it's being a dad, whether it's being a friend, I wanna be somebody that when I'm looking back on this and other people say, he gave it everything he had, he left it all on the field. And I was not necessarily going in that direction, even though I was doing good.
1: You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood, told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Eric Rogel, and this is Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. And what you just heard was my guest today. That's Hank McClarty. And he's talking about what motivated him to make some very deliberate decisions he's made recently in his life and, and also in his business. And those decisions have delivered tremendous positive results, as you're going to hear. But now, those of you who attended my Complete Man Summit last year will remember Hank. He was one of my guests, and he told the story of how he went from a rising star at Merrill Lynch and then Morgan Stanley and enjoying all the stuff that goes along with that, you know, the wealth, the cars, the big house, the beautiful wife, the respect, the travel, all of it. He went from that to suddenly losing everything almost overnight, lost his money, his home, his wife, and he ended up having to use credit card points just to be able to live in an extended um, stay hotel With his two young sons, he had no money to pay for the hotel, had to use points from a credit card. But as you're going to hear, and as he told then, and he'll get into that a little bit today, that didn't last long because Hank tapped into his warrior and he realized he had to do whatever he needed to do to get his new wealth management company that he founded called Gratis Capital off the ground. So yeah, he's going to tell you a bit about that today, but he's going to do it with a lot more added on a lot more of the lessons that he's learned and a lot more about those decisions that he's made to move everything in his life forwards. Great stuff. And those are decisions that have put gratis capital on the Forbes top 250 wealth advisors list now for the fifth year in a row. This year, they landed them at uh, number 51 out of 250. Just amazing. And right now, Gratis has just over $2 billion under management. But Hank's goal, as he's going to tell you, is to 10x that and get the company to $20 billion. And that is a pretty bold goal. $20 billion is a huge number, but they're on their way. And Hank's convinced they're going to make it. He's going to tell you what it's going to take and how he got everyone in the company to buy in, to be inspired and motivated to make it happen. So let's get at that. But um, as we got into the interview, first I wanted to hear about Hank's ability to set big goals like this for himself, and then to be able to smash those goals. So Hank, you know, when, when we've talked when you were on the um, the Complete Man Summit, one of the big things that um, really kind of got you moving in life was you're a big goal setter and you, you had some really big goals that you set right back from when you were in high school that kind of led you, uh, you know, to a lot of the achievements that you have. Tell me about that a little bit about these goals that you set and how you went about achieving them.
0: Sure, Eric. Um, so when I was a, a sophomore in high school, um, I was not a starter for my high school JV team or obviously the varsity team. But for some reason I decided as a sophomore in high school that I was gonna set a goal to get a full scholarship to play football in college at a major football program. And as you might imagine, um, you know, usually the somebody, a sophomore in high school that's gonna play major college football, they're already starting for their varsity team sometimes. It, certainly they're starting for the JV team and they're already well known and they're kind of a superstar in their community, which is far from where I was. Uh, but I set this goal and it kind of gave me, a, a vision to shoot for that was, uh, I guess if you could call it maybe my North star in high school, it kept me really focused. I worked out all the time. I ran all the time and was kind of obsessed with this goal. And so,
2: and it was a big goal, right? I mean, this was not something small. This wasn't just to make the JV team. This was to play big time football.
0: Right, right, right. And, um, So it gave me something to work for, which I figured out early on about myself. That's that I do really well when I have a goal to work towards. Um, And so, you know, I wasn't achieving this goal. I wasn't there even after my junior year of high school. I still wasn't starting for the varsity team, which is not good. So I said to my dad, um, hey, dad, it doesn't look like this goal is materializing. Um, I need to do something drastic. Like I need to get away from my girlfriend and my friends that are drinking and you know, doing whatever. I need to go somewhere and just like focus. And so he called a friend in Kentucky that had a, a little cabin on the river and he helped me get a job at a horse farm. So I moved to Lexington, Kentucky for the summer before my senior year and worked on this horse farm all day. And then I would train, uh, lift weights in the afternoon, run in the morning and work on this horse farm. And I got an amazing shape and it just a little bit lonely. I moved up there as a 16 year old and, um, I certainly would have never let my kids at 16 move away to a farm.
2: <laughs> yeah, but this was great, man. So this was a decision that you made. You decided if I'm going to hit this goal, this is what's necessary. And then you did whatever it took to get there.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I came back from Kentucky that summer um, in great, great shape. And uh, I remember when I walked into the field house at my high school, you know, my coaches hadn't seen me all summer, you know, and their eyes got wide and they said, damn, you know, you were- he got an amazing shape and I'd always worked out hard, but it was noticeably different that I'd been gone for three months. And so anyway, um, first couple of games went great. And then the third game we had against our arch rival and some scouts from different colleges uh, came to actually see other players from the team we were playing. They were not there to see me, but I had the game of my life uh, that night and uh, seemed like I made most of the tackles. I didn't, but I was playing middle linebacker and I made, a lot of tackles that game. And, and um, so the next day, some of these scouts actually called me and offered me a scholarship. So I ended up getting an offer from Auburn um, and Alabama uh, for a full scholarship the day after this game. And then other schools started recruiting me and so forth. So I walked out of that whole season with a kind of reached my goal. I was at the pinnacle and, and at at an early age, realized that if I set a goal and just, completely was dedicated to it and worked my ass off that you know there was something that even seemed uh too far out there for me to achieve that I could do it and so yes.
2: that- and, and or- you believed in it right I mean that was the key thing too that like you actually you you firmly believed you were going to achieve this goal
0: I did but had no reason to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I had no- foundation that anybody nobody my dad nobody nobody thought that this was something that was going to happen and at times I didn't either but I didn't quit and so then uh, I, you know I made it happen so
2: awesome so you so you make it to auburn you get out and then how did you have goals when you were there too and then goals for when you got out of school tell me about that a bit
0: yeah so I uh, I had you know I was passionate about football I got to auburn and found myself immersed in you know, a bunch of guys that were just naturally amazing athletes. They were bigger, stronger, faster, and didn't have to work nearly as hard as I did to get to that level. So, um, you know, I grew up there a lot. Uh, I matured. I was ready to play and contribute to the team, especially my junior year. And then I ended up getting sick. I got a blood disease. And long story short, I ended up having to go on medical scholarship. So my football career came to an end suddenly. Um, and then I buckled down and focused on school. Um, so I got out of Auburn and I had a degree in finance and a minor in accounting and got out of Auburn and um, went to work at Merrill Lynch.
2: Yeah. And, and you had some goals at Merrill Lynch, too, because this kind of starts the, the journey that you took that, you know, we talked about when we when we did your masterclass at the at the summit. And um, you had some pretty massive goals for Merrill Lynch, too, while you were there. Well,
0: uh, those goals came uh, a brief period after starting. At first, I was doing miserable. I was cold calling every day, and I sucked at it, and was falling behind on every goal that the company set for me, and was on the verge of quitting. I mean, I was I was literally about to walk in the manager's office and quit. And I cold called a guy that uh, that cussed me out on the phone worse than any football coach, ever. <laughs> and I was on the verge of quitting anyway. And I still had a little bit of middle linebacker mentality in me, so. I hung up the phone after this guy cussed me out and I was like, you know, screw this guy, I'm gonna drive out and confront him. So I drove out to his office um, and confronted him uh, for all the things that he had said to me on the phone. And he invited me into his office, apologized, and we ended up talking for a few hours and became friends. And long story short, uh, he and his uh, partner that had founded this company Brought in some private equity money. They needed to invest it, and I had developed a strong relationship with them over a few months. They called me up and asked me to come pick the check up, and it was big enough check to where I exceeded all of my goals with Merrill Lynch. And I got off the training program with one client. So I went from uh, being kind of a dog at the firm, like not (laughs) uh, and struggling to meet all my goals, to being one of the youngest people to get off the training program and. That's when I started saying, okay, maybe I can do this, you know, maybe if I'm direct, and myself, and work really hard, maybe I can actually, not only not quit, but but really really be successful in this program. And so that's when I started setting aggressive goals.
2: Yeah, and I'll tell you, that was um, a pretty, pretty ballsy move, man, to just hang up with this guy who's got money. You're a kid in the training program, first year there. And you're like, screw this guy, I'm going to his house. And I'm going to confront him. I mean, what was going through your head at that time? I mean, was it just, you'd had enough and it was fuck it. I'm just going to, I got nothing to lose at this point.
0: I think it was less ballsy and more immature. I'm going to go kick this guy's ass. Nobody talked to me. This way. <laughs> um, and I didn't go to his house. I went to his office. Um, nah. But uh, you know, maybe on the drive out there, it was more, you know, I'm the motherfucker. You just told the to fuck off uh, 20 times on the phone what can I do to earn your business? And then, you know, it, it kind of turned, I, I calmed down on the way out there. I would not say it was ballsy. I would say it was more immature. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it worked out really well. And it, it kind of showed me that, you know, being direct and honest is not always the commonplace in the, in the business environment, especially in the business I was in. And that, um, you know, if I was that way moving forward and worked really hard, that, that maybe I could make something of myself in this business.
2: Yeah. So you set some goals going forward at Merrill Lynch, right? From that point forward. Yeah. Go.
0: Yeah. So I was 21 at the time when that happened. And so I said, you know, by the time I'm 30, uh, I'm going to make a million dollars, which was a, you know, nobody in my family had ever done anything like that. And I certainly, you know, that would be a massive number for anything that I would ever consider to be successful. So I set that goal and, um, worked really hard um, at developing my skills and, um, and frankly, just not giving up. And by the time I was 30, you know, I looked around and had uh, a beautiful wife and, and two healthy uh, toddler sons, and I was making well over a million dollars and, um, you know, really, uh, really enjoying life and doing well and and, uh, starting to really believe in myself, you know?
2: Yeah. And so you hit that goal too. But then, uh, it kind of unraveled from there for you.
0: Yeah, not quite at that point. So, uh, between 31 and 34, I continued to build the business and got bigger and bigger. And by the time I was 34, you know, I had been uh, on the cover of several magazines and been ranked, um, as one of the top financial advisors in the United States across all firms and featured in a book, um, of the top 20 financial advisors in the company or in the country, I mean, and the biggest part of that was I was 34 at the time, and pretty much anybody else on those lists were were over 50, and so I was very young to have reached that levels of success at that time. And um, for the first time in my life, I went past the uh, you know at that point I had been like always thinking I'm not quite good enough, but if I work my ass off, I can overcome it. I was very humble. Mm-hmm. By the time I was 34, some of that humility had left. And I started kind of drinking the Hank Kool-Aid and really believe. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, in the kind of broker financial advisor world, it's easy to do that. Um, yeah. That kind of, kind of pompous attitudes in that business. And I was right there with them. I, I became one of them, you know.
2: So the ego starts to explode at that time. And it's like, you know, yeah. I can't lose and I'm doing all this. And I've got everything other men always dream of. So... I must be, you know, better than everyone. I'm awesome. That whole thing. Right.
0: Yeah. I really am the guy on the cover of that magazine and I deserve to be,
2: you know, <laughs> which in one way could be really good. Right. Cause there's healthy yeah. ego and there is that I'm the best yeah. of the best. And I, th- then there's the unhealthy ego, which is where you were going, which was, you know, at the expense of others and at the expense of your own, um, yeah, you know, your, your own uh, growth, your own moving forward, right?
0: That's right. I, I definitely would say that, you know, the team that I had built, at this point, I had moved my team to Morgan Stanley, and the team that I had built, I'm sure if you asked them about what, how my personality had transitioned over that time, they would say, oh, the majority of it, very humble, hard worker, towards the end, you know, uh, kind of into himself and and promoting the ego and things of that nature, I'm sure, and I know that my my then wife, who is now my ex-wife, I I know that she would say the same thing. So,
2: (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And so when, when did it all, after you moved to Morgan Stanley and, and so tell that story a little bit, because it it does unravel at this point and it's, it's an amazing story. And, um, I want you to share that with us.
0: Sure. Um, so I, I had moved my team to Morgan Stanley, um, was, you know, hitting all these amazing uh, accolades and magazines and all of that. And then at just the right time where my ego was was being um, pumped with information from another firm that I needed to hear, another firm approached me to leave Morgan Stanley and come work at their firm. And uh, this was a, a much smaller firm, but kind of a boutique new firm. And they had already opened up an office in Boca Raton Florida and in Arkansas and their plan was to open up boutique offices around the country and they had already brought on large teams from Merrill Lynch and from uh, Morgan Stanley and so they approached me because their headquarters was going to be in Atlanta and they wanted me to leave Morgan Stanley and come be the anchor team of their their new firm and um, they said all the right things and you know said the was-
2: ego the right way right
0: oh yeah they said I was and over and over, just enough times that I said, Okay. <laughs> so, and they were going to pay me a huge check up front to go join this firm. And then I introduced uh, my top three or four clients to the CEO of this firm, and they loved the idea and the concept, and everybody was all in. And so I went in and resigned at Morgan Stanley. And of course, you know, I was the young guy, the kind of up and coming star within the firm, and they they, uh, they were very unhappy, to say the least, when I resigned and threatened me legally, said they were going to come after me and you know all of that. And um, so then I got in my car. I really didn't care about their threats because I'm going to be the superstar at this new firm. So I got in my car to drive over to the new firm, and I called them and said, hey, I just resigned. I'm on my way over. And then they said uh, a few words I'll never forget. They said, well, uh, we thought you were resigning tomorrow. We're waiting on our next round of funding to pay you your upfront check. And of course, I, I had never heard anything about next round of funding. And you know, to, uh, to my own fault, I had never checked their financials. I assumed based on their track record so far that they were financially you know fine. And so um, instead of them ever paying me that money upfront, we got in a wrestling match about the whole thing. That firm ended up going under. The two teams they had brought in from Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch had to leave and go join other firms. And I found myself with no job. Mm. And Morgan Stanley was so upset with me that uh, they offered discounts to my clients that were there to stay. And uh, my team at Morgan Stanley was pretty frustrated with me because I was only going to take a few of them with me. So the ones that I had not discussed this situation with, they felt betrayed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whole team, I had nine people on my team at Morgan Stanley. They all stayed together in one unit all my clients stayed at Morgan Stanley and the only, the only missing component was me yeah. and I had a job of delegating all of these clients to people on the team. So, you know, without me, there, to lead. without me, what, without me there to lead, they, um, they were okay. And so, you know, my net worth at that time was all my clients and their revenues And, um, without any clients and any revenues, I really didn't have any value in the marketplace and I didn't have anywhere to go. So,
2: so you're like a man without a country at this point, like everybody's gone and you're just, you and your ego just standing there alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that
0: was the ego was deflating quickly. (laughs) uh, And then, you know, to, which is totally understandable at this point, my, uh, my wife had had enough, um, you know, and, and. We decided to uh to get a divorce um so you know i had two boys they were uh four and six at the time and um so uh yeah i uh awful lot went to uh to my ex-wife in that divorce and all my liquidity went away for a myriad of reasons but i ended up with no income and no liquid assets and uh so my my sons and I lived in a hotel uh, for about 14 months and we did as I had so many points built up when I was going around and spending all my money on my credit cards. And I had a ton of points built up on my credit card that you could use at a Marriott. So me and my boys lived in a residence inn for 14 months on points on the
2: card. And um, so let me ask you a question. How's that feeling to you? Because that's a pretty sudden change. Biggest guy in the world, ego, cover magazines, wife, kids, house, job, team, whole thing. And then very quickly after that, you're a man alone living on points in a hotel with your sons. I mean, what's the feeling on that going in? It's pretty awful. Um,
0: It's... uh... It's probably the greatest thing for me that I've ever been through but I would never want to go through it again. Um, it's kind of looking around at your surroundings standing in a hotel and, you know, having a actually had one of those magazines that I was on the cover of sitting on the table and saying if they could only say to myself if they could only see me now. Um you know, tucking my kids into bed and in their little bunk beds that I moved into the residence and tucking them in at night and and literally sitting on the steps outside of the hotel room uh, in at complete loss of what my next step should be. And um, it was the first time in my life I had no idea what to do. And it was, it was very emotional and very scary. Yeah.
2: And any, any, thoughts had given up at that point or what you were going to do or where you were going to go, or, or had you, you know, made any new goals or what was going through your head at this time? Cause 14 months is a, is a long time to be, you know, there. So yeah. what were well, you working I towards? I don't more?
0: remember how many months it was before I took action. I mean, it wasn't very long before I took action. I think the worst part of it was, the, you know, the, just the embarrassment, the humility of it. Like I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I was so ashamed of kind of what had happened. And, you know, everybody thought I was what I, what I was before. And mm-hmm. reality was, you know, I, I needed to be humbled. I was humbled and um, I really couldn't talk to anybody. I felt like I was pretty much isolated because I didn't want anybody to know. On top of that, I had the burden of, you know, my kids were in private school. I now owed my ex-wife a lot of money every month and I had no income. Um, so the worst part of it was, you know, where I was trying to figure out what to do. You asked me, did I ever feel like giving up? Um, I've thought about that a lot since then, and I don't think I would ever be the type that would give up. I damn sure would never give up with two, two young men, you know, two boys that were depending on me. Um, so it's hard to know how I would have done had I not had those two in those bunk beds and you know, dealing with them every day. That was my motivation. Um, I'm not sure I thought I was worth the motivation at that point. I was pretty low, but um, those um, those boys were certainly uh, enough motivation for me to figure it out.
2: Yeah, I can feel that. Absolutely. I mean, just the sense of love, duty to them and being there for them. And so, we're going to fast forward a bit because I want to get into the good stuff with you because you did turn it around. I mean, yeah. um, this was what, about 15 years ago since you started the, yeah. the, the new firm? So tell me about that decision, how you got it going, and, and then we'll get into some of the really good stuff that I want to get into today. Okay.
0: Um, so I decided with all of this, obviously I got to take action and do something. Uh, no company is going to want to hire me, uh, except at like a starter. I don't have any clients. I don't have any value to bring to a company. So I kind of need to start my own. Um, so I decided to start my own wealth management firm. Um, and obviously I didn't have a lot of money to do that and, so I started uh, a wealth management firm with the idea that I've got to ramp this thing up really fast because I've got a lot of bills come and do with private school and, and uh, you know, alimony, child support, all these other expenses. I, I've got to ramp this up at a rate that I've never experienced before. And very few people have, I'm going to have to really get after it. So, you know, at that point I had reflected enough on the fact that I needed some humility and I needed to get more grateful for things. And so, I um you know I started off with even just the name of the company I named it gratis capital um, because gratis is a Latin word for grateful and I just I didn't want to name the company you know my name and it stand for me and you know get my ego back engaged I didn't want it to have to do with Wall Street or money I wanted the company to stand for something different that you don't normally see in wealth management you know a, a humble kind of grat- gratitude um, focus on the clients and the team and you know, the team initially was me, uh, but yeah, so that's how I started the company.
2: Yeah, and you and I think you told me when we last talked about how you were paying your receptionist. Aren't you paying her on credit card? I mean, you were really all in on this. You would leverage yourself to get this thing going, right?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I, um, I got a lady to answer the phones and, um, you know, make it look like a bigger operation than it actually was. <laughs> Um, you know, and I got out on the streets. I mean, you know, when I started at Merrill Lynch, you know, when you're 21 years old and you're cold calling, that's where you're supposed to be, right? There's nothing humbling about that. That's what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. But at this point I was 34 and had already kind of quote made it right. Mm -hmm. I I didn't even have time. Cold calling took too long. I had to go start knocking on doors and it was, you know, I thought I'd been humbled enough at that point. Um, going to knock on doors and having security escort you out of a building because you're soliciting and things of that nature. I had never gone that low, um, in the beginning of my career, but I didn't have a choice at this point. I, again, that's like my son's, the motivating factor was I got to get something done. I got to get it done quick. And, um, I would give myself an hour to go recoup from all the, uh, the no, no, no's that I was getting constantly. And then I closed my first one um, from knocking on a door and leaving my book, that book I mentioned before that I was featured in. That was really the only thing I had to add credibility, right? I'm knocking on the door. Who, who would be good in my business knocking on doors, right? So but I had to be aggressive. But once I knocked on a door and got somebody's attention, which was not often, I had this book to leave with them. You know, I had this book where I was in, I was a chapter in this book, the top 20 wealth advisors in the country. So I did have some credibility if I could ever get that to somebody. And so I was able to get my book to a guy and he was selling a software company and we had great discussions and a great connection. Um, And I closed a huge account. That was my first one knocking on doors. And, um, you know, I was another one of those things where I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I can get this thing going. And then I closed another one and then I closed another one. And, um, you know, just, started uh, believing in myself more in a much more humble way, but, but um, believing that I could get this thing going. And then I hired somebody, hired another person, bought some more software, closed another account and just, you know, started building some momentum.
2: Yeah. And that was, like we said, 15 years ago, right? That, that, yep. that happened. And you are now, you know, been on the Forbes 100 list That's consistently. Right. What's that?
0: I said, yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, yeah, consistently, and and you've got how much under management right now?
0: Uh, we're a little over two billion.
2: That's that's a far cry from living in a living in a Marriott on points, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, you know it is, Eric. But um, it's funny because I know you and I are going to talk about vision and where yep. I'm taking the company now. But it's funny as I've been reflecting on the vision of the company from today forward. It's made me like, what was my vision when I was living in that hotel and I started this company? I was like, one word, survival. Like There was no, we're going to grow to this, or I'm going to hire this many people, or we're going to get this many clients. It was, I just got to bring in as many as I can, as fast as I can for survival. Right. Um, And then we kind of moved from the survival focus or vision to, okay, we've got a good team here. We've got great clients. Let's just grow the firm. But no real like... Hardcore place that we were trying to get to. It was just let's grow the firm, and um, and then we got to the point where the vision and the values that we've established now that I think are going to change the entire direction and pace of growth with the firm going forward, which is very different from you know vision being survival, right?
2: Right, absolutely. And and you got an amazing vision on this, and this came from you were telling me it was right before you turned fifty, and you yeah. started thinking on some stuff. So tell me about that.
0: So, uh, yeah, before I turned about a year before I turned 50, I started reflecting on, um, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost past halfway through my life. You know, hopefully I live to be 80, 90, whatever. I think I'm pretty healthy, but you know, I could get hit by a car tomorrow. So, but with the assumption that at some point down the road, I get to reflect back on my life, you know, what do I want that to be? I've always, I've obviously got a an interesting story, I wouldn't say, <laughs> it's an interesting story of not quitting and ups and downs, but what, where do I wanna reflect back on this? And so at that age, at, at 48 and a half, 49, I really started thinking about, okay, the company's been growing, it's been doing well. At that point, <clears throat> we had been named on Forbes top 100 companies in the US three years in a row, when I was reflecting on this. Mm-hmm. So we already had you know what most people would say was success, And I could have stayed on autopilot and continued to grow the company. And, you know, we'd go from 2 billion to 3 billion to 4 billion and kind of cruise into that and have a great lifestyle and all of that. But when I really thought long and hard about this, I was like, you know, if I'm 70, 80, 90, whenever I slow down and I'm reflecting back, am I gonna be okay with that? And I decided absolutely not, Um, like a strong no. And then I said, well, what would it look like if I was reflecting back on this? And I said, you know what? That was life well lived. Mm. And I realized that I want to be able to look back and say I left it all on the field. Like whether it was kiteboarding, whether it's fitness, whether it's you know running this company, whether it's being a dad, whether it's being a friend. I want to be somebody that when I'm looking back on this and other people say, he gave it everything he had. He left it all on the field. And I was not necessarily going in that direction, even though I was doing good. And so I reset my vision for the company, which, you know, now that my sons are 22 and 24, you know, they're my buddies, right? I'm done parenting them. They're my, they're my friends now. And so I don't need to set a vision for parenting. They're raised, they're doing great. So now it's like, what am I going to do with this company? And so I decided that a vision that would make me feel amazing 10 years from now would be for us to 10x the company. And even though there's a lot of software companies and other, that can do that rapidly. It's certainly not unheard of to 10x a company, but to 10x a company in my business and do it well is not that common. And if you add in the factors to our vision, we want to 10x the company. We want our client's experience to exceed all expectations, which means we've got to make our client experience even better as we're growing and we want our team to be raving fans of the company they work for and brag about where they work when they're talking to their family and friends and so forth so we're getting constant feedback from our clients through feedback mechanisms and our team so if we hit all three of those 10x the company our team loves where they work and our clients were exceeding their expectations and they're giving us regular feedback about that that would be very special to do all three of those in a 10 year period. And so that's how I came up with the vision. And that's um, the vision that I have discussed to the point that my team can probably say it in their sleep. Um,
2: (laughs) So so you're looking at 20 billion, right? And if you're going to 10 X the company, you're going from two to 20. That's right. With this experience. And that's not typical in your industry to have that, you know, exceptional experience to treat the employees, So there's going to be an impact, not only on your company, but it's an impact on the industry as a whole. I'm I'm thinking. I think so.
0: Um, You know, what's relevant to me is the team that I work with. Um, I know exactly how many people are going to be working at our firm when we 10 X at the end of this, we've done all the three year, five year, 10 year strategic plan. I know how many advisors we're going to have, how many people on our investment team. Um, I know exactly, you know, how many how much our assets are going to be at that point and i know exactly how we're doing our scores with our clients and so you know most companies when they grow rapidly their client experience gets diluted or their team feels like they're not being listened to or you know, there's all kinds of negative things that come with growth right,
2: yeah they're not sharing in the victories they don't feel a part of it yeah
0: that's right and um, so that's why i said you know 10xing the company you know that's great it's not extraordinary it's great 10xing the company and accomplishing those two other areas with the clients and the team, that would be extraordinary. And that would be something that I would be uh, extremely proud of. And it's going to take all of the leadership skills that I have, and more importantly, all the leadership skills that I have yet to learn uh, as as we grow together as a firm.
2: Yeah, I love what you just said about all the leadership skills I have yet to learn. So there's something there about knowing what you don't know and, and being open enough to learn and grow, right? I mean, that's that's a tough lesson for a lot of us. I know I had to learn it, you know, being the know-it-all and not wanting to listen and and figuring you've got it all figured out. So on, on that end for you, that's, you know, commendable. So so what are you doing taking steps on that?
0: So, I well, I think number one, you remember I said when I lost everything and lived in that hotel, it's not something I want to go through, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't think I would have the abilities and the the ability to see okay you're doing pretty good but you got a long way to go I don't know if those words would come out of my mouth had I not been through that the self-awareness of I I gotta keep growing forever like if any day that I say to myself I've got this figured out that's when it comes crashing down you know so yeah uh so to develop my leadership skills um you know I'm a consummate reader of of uh, leadership books. I'm a consummate leader of, of listening to leadership podcasts. Um, I have a, a group of eight young men that my two sons are included that I mentor once a month in a group setting. Um, and then I have another group of eight men that I'm in a group with that, you know, they hold me accountable and so forth. So I surround myself by people that I want to be more like or that are doing things I think better than me. Um, so you know that the old rule right you are the top five people that you spend the most time Mm -hmm. with I really didn't know that rule when I was younger I didn't know it I didn't live it I certainly didn't have five people around me that were holding me accountable I needed somebody to slap the shit out of me when I was 33 or 34 and I didn't have that in my life I have eight men in my life right now that would literally slap the shit out of me if I started acting that way and so um I think um Nobody's a tougher critic on me than me, but I definitely have some people in my life that I could count on to hold me accountable, that they get fired up maybe more than I do when I do something well, um, and that we collaborate on how we're all growing as leaders and fathers and, and so forth. So I have an amazing support system um, that I think pushes me to get better.
2: And that is so important, uh, Hank. I can't agree with you more. I mean, so many of us I know myself included, grew up without that. And when you yeah. have it now and you've experienced what life is like without it, it, it's it's night and day. And it's one of these things I think as men, we need to look at more. And I know, you know, that ego thing gets in the way for a lot of us. That's where it was for me. I know everything. I don't need another guy helping me. I can do this on my own. I'm good enough to do it on my own. But you know, like you said, as you went through what you went through, and those of us that have gone through. Um, you know, these challenges and failures can tell you, it it is so important to have those people in your life and cultivate that really great group of men around you. And then I love what you're saying. You know, you do it with uh, your son and the other young men that you're mentoring at the same time. The best leaders are great followers. The best mentors are great students. So it's, um, it's both on that. And I want to get into one thing because, you know, one of the things you're doing with this vision and these values is, is, is impact. I mean, this is a lot of impact that you're doing. And one of the things that's really going to get impacted is the lives of the people that are working for you right now, your team members, and and you've set up some great stuff for them. As you 10 X this company and get to that goal, you have some great incentives set up for them. That's going to be very impactful on their lives. But one of your main guys, I don't know if it was the president of your company, but when you and I were talking, before this, that wasn't really on board with you doing that. That was a numbers thing and was like, hey, hey, Hank, take a look at this. I don't know if we should do this. Yeah. But you decided to do it anyway. So tell me about that.
0: So, um, I, yeah, I, I felt like the situation with the firm being as bought into the vision as I am was really important. And so, um, you know, I would, I've talked to the, the firm, especially my leadership team. You know, and I've said things to them like, you know, when, when you're willing to throw it on the line and you're willing to put everything you have into a vision and, and get a team to come together and believe that this vision is something bigger than, than their own themselves, uh, that what we're working towards as a team is bigger than any of the individuals in our company. If We can get our team to buy into that and feel that. And trust that the team's performance is gonna outpace anything they could get as an individual, then we will really have something. Like that's when this whole thing will come together. And um, to your point, I was able to get, especially the leadership team, to 110% buy into this vision. And that is probably one of the most successful things I've ever done, because I have some amazing people on my team, really seasoned veterans, pros and I got them to buy into this vision wholeheartedly. And um, one of the ways that I have done that with the whole team is what you were referencing is, I said, you know, if we execute this 10, 10X vision, then um, everybody's gonna get their salary and their bonus and they're gonna say, you know, great, we 10X the company. But those of us that are shareholders are going to obviously have not just a win, we're gonna have lots of impact with our net worth and wealth and things of that nature. and I decided that in order to get the team really bought in, we needed to get everybody involved in that earnings growth and that winning, uh, not just with us winning as a team, they needed to have some wins financially as a result of this. And so we're actually in the process right now of developing this earnings participation program for everybody in our team to be a part of that as we close these big accounts and as sometimes we stay late and work overtime or do some of the things that we have to do to really Ramp this company up and make sure our clients are having exceptional experience and all the things that you and I just talked about. We got to make this a special situation for our team, too. We've got to make this something that they get really excited about being a part of. And, uh, you know, we're all motivated by getting our name up on the wall and and getting a pat on the back, but we're also really motivated by when we get some monetary rewards from that as well. And so, um, you know, sometimes you have to make a commitment now that maybe isn't uh, the most beneficial for today's earnings in order for it to pay off long-term and invest in your people. And I think that's what you're referring to as to yeah. some of the discussions we had to have with our CFO and, and other people, you know, our leadership, who are all paid by the way, for us to have better margins and growing earnings. And I came up with an idea that's gonna put a dent in both of that, but I think it's an amazing way to invest in our team long-term and get them bought in because there is going to be things asked of them over the next 10 years to achieve this extraordinary vision that we've set for the firm that are going to maybe be above and beyond what somebody else in their exact role at another company would be asked to do. And they need to feel appreciated. That's how we're going to create raving fans. That's how people are not going to get burned out when they're asked to do something. Celebrating wins every Friday in our Friday firm-wides having values awards that go out every quarter to our team and making huge fanfare about that, just making this a really fun, rewarding place that people feel as though they're being valued and appreciated all the time. That takes effort. But in order for us to hit this vision and them to be raving fans about the company they work for and their team members that they work with, we've got to do some extraordinary things for them.
2: And so taking that financial hit now, investing in that now, Um, like you said, you've got guys that are in there to look at, you know, protect your bottom line. But I think what you're saying here is there are things that are more important than just bottom line numbers.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I, I realized when I was really thinking through this vision, and I listened to a lot of podcasts, as I mentioned to you before on leadership and so forth. And some of the podcasts I listened to are more about mindfulness, you know, stoic, um, stoic practice and focusing on the things you can control and all these other things. But sometimes I hear people say that the goal of wealth and the goal of money is to have ultimate freedom, right? And it's to develop enough money that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and not have to be on somebody else's schedule. And if you hear that enough, you think that's the goal. And maybe that is the goal an exact thing for some people to shoot for The thing that I realized in this process that as I have rolled this vision out, as I have seen my team, unfortunately only on Zoom meetings, but as I have seen my team's faces on the big squares across the screen when we have our discussions about vision and values, as I've seen their eyes light up when I talk to them about us coming together and doing something bigger than ourselves as individuals. And I ask them, have any of you ever participated in something where you were totally focused with a group of people, a team or something that you were all shooting for something bigger than anything that you as individuals wanted? Have you ever worked for something that was bigger than yourselves? And before they could answer, I said, I have not, I have not ever been, I've been on a football team at Auburn, but everybody was working as a team, but it was still individuals. Like I have not ever been a part of something that came together where in unison, they were all working towards something bigger than themselves. And nobody else could say they had either. I said, that's literally what we're in the middle of. That's how special this could be. And my team believes it and they buy into it. And so um, I've realized in this process that that part, you know, that leadership is one of the most difficult things, getting a group of people through ins and outs and ups and downs to buy into and follow is one of the hardest things, I believe. That, that a human being can do. And I get so much reward from working with my team and seeing them start to buy in and, and have trust in the vision and have trust in their teammates. And, um, you know, that's what honestly really motivates me and really gets me fired up about where we're going.
2: And you know what I'm feeling too, Hank, on this is, it's not just the effect it's having and the impact it's having on them is not just with their teammates and in the company. They're going to carry this forward themselves in other areas of their lives. And they may at some point take a leadership role on it at another company or, or leave to start their own. And, yeah. and this lesson here, what you're saying, is going to go with them when they leave and, and impact other lives going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I totally uh, you know, we we um there's a book out called uh Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink that you know probably a lot of your w- listeners have heard, but sure. It's, required reading for our firm. We have like four book clubs going on right now. Every new team member that joins our firm, they have to read that book with a group and discuss each chapter every week. And then I use that book as a foundation for discussing values at every firm-wide call we have, which is at least twice a month. And so an awful lot of what comes out of that book is, you know, check your ego, focus on humility, the team comes before you, all of that. And so, um, you know, I think, Jocko and his partner did a phenomenal job of writing that book. And again, it's, it's part of what um, we've created our values on with the company. And it's um, as I said, it's required reading for the firm. So one of the, one of the things that came out of that book was that I had to talk with my team about is uh, there's no bad teams, only bad leaders, which mm. basically means any team that is not functioning well, 110% of that goes to the leader. And as CEO of my company, anything that goes wrong in my company ultimately is my responsibility, no matter what it is, because uh, it means I don't. Somebody's not getting trained right. Somebody hadn't had the right feedback. Somebody hadn't had the right leadership. There's something, and I take that responsibility, um, and and all of my leaders do too. So this is something that we talk about all the time. But just the uh, I just don't know. Had I not been through some of what you and I talked about a few minutes ago, I don't know that I would have the uh, the humility or the self-awareness to look at things the way that I do right now, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at now and, and working towards these goals, but I, d- I just don't think I would have the foundation to be on the journey that I'm on right now had that not happened.
2: Yeah, and you know, I hear this over and over, and, you know, Hank, you and I have had this conversation before where it is those challenges, it is those biggest we'll call them failures, but they're not. They're incredible experiences, learning experiences. And, and most of the, the men that I've spoken to that are, you know, high achievers that have, that have gone on to do great things. And it is a, f- a function of having gone through an incredible challenge like that to get out to the other side. I mean, that's where the appreciation comes in of, you know, learning those lessons and taking it, taking it forward. So, man, I, I just a- appreciate you sharing that with us and, and, and the leadership outlook, because you're right. It is, it is that ownership of everything goes through me. And um, having the experience that you had gives you, I believe, you know, like you said, the self-awareness and the ability to say, this is all on me. I take full responsibility. And it looks as an example to those that are in your company. It gives them the ability to look at their own mistakes and their own failings and take the lessons from those. And step up and step forward.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know one of the things about building the team, we've added um, we've added uh, seven leaders in the last fourteen months. Mm. And when I say we've added seven leaders, I'm talking about top notch former executives with Home Depot, former executives with Fidelity, former executives with. Um, with Cox Enterprises, I mean these are these are veteran pros that chose to come join this firm when I articulated what our vision was to them. Which, you know, it was uh, it was humbling for me to say, "Gosh, I, I built this vision that I am extremely passionate about, and there is one hundred percent conviction we're going to do it." And me and several of the leaders that left these other long-term careers to come join the firm, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, we're here to take the hill. We're on the same team. We've got a mission in front of us. The words that we're using are all very exciting to all of us uh, because, again, it's a team-oriented focus. Uh, Not any one of us is going to do it. We're going to all do it together. And I think some of that passion that comes with that oftentimes is what's missing in the business environment. Um, You know, people are checking boxes, getting paychecks, hitting sales goals, whatever, but this is, this will be an extraordinary goal for us to hit. And it's one that we can't hit unless every single person on the team is, um, is giving their best and believes in it and has passion towards it. And that's what's so exciting for these people that left comfortable jobs, making a lot of money to come join this firm and, I love it when we talk about taking the hill because all of us really feel like we're on a mission. It's just a ton of fun.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like you're all in that together. You know, that, that's the key thing, man. It's just amazing what you're doing over there. So as we leave, Hank, give me, what is your, your, the biggest lesson that you've learned that you can uh, kind of leave everyone with? Um, imagine we're the, the eight young men that you, uh, that you mentor and talk to, what, what's the biggest lesson you'd want them to know and you want us to know?
0: Ooh, I think there's kind of two parts to that. I would say one of them is really figure out where you want your impact to be and take action towards that. Um, I, I know that this vision that I've set for the firm, that is my North Star. It's what guides all of my decisions. So every decision I make, if it contradicts this vision I have, whether it's a business or a personal decision, anything, every decision I make, because I think about this vision all the time. I talk with my team about it all the time. I know what I want my impact to be. And it makes life so easy when you're making decisions. If it's going to detract from that, I'm just not doing it. So that's the one thing that if, had I been, had I had that when I was younger, it would have helped me avoid a lot of stupid decisions that I made. Had I had that North Star that I was focused on that I knew that's where I was going. And I've got one young man in my young men's group right now that I'm literally having that discussion with him next week. He's all over the place, doesn't know what he wants to do. And it's keeping him from reaching his potential. I think there's a kind of a second part of that too, that as you're growing and you're learning all your lessons, the thing that I had to learn also, and I think it's really important to leave this with your listeners, is that the past doesn't define you. So when I lost everything, was living in that hotel, struggling with this company, I mean, I was constantly fighting with, does this define me? As you know, I was, I was uncomfortable with my surroundings and what I had come to be. And then I read a quote um, from Khalil Gibran. Um, and, it, and the quote was the most massive characters are seared with scars. And that quote really hit me because it was like, you know, everything that I've been through is the, are the things that have made me, whatever I am today, that's what's made me where I am. And if massive characters are really seared with scars, then I definitely got a massive character. because, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, using those things as saying, the past doesn't define you. It's your building blocks to become what you have potential to become. And um, that's a turning point. When you stop looking at things in the past as being things that you're uncomfortable talking about or embarrassed about, and start looking at them. Those are the stepping stones that I had to go through to become whatever I'm going to become. That's that's a massive uh, part of, of getting to the point where I think you start using the past as a tool instead of something that's detracting from you.
2: Following that North Star, man, I love the way Hank puts that. As someone who has a tendency like me <laughs> to chase after shiny objects, right? Anything new that comes along. Focusing on that North Star and then using it as a guide, checking anything that comes up or gets, you know, kind of offered to you an idea, an opportunity, checking that against that vision can really keep you on track. And then, you know, of course, I resonate with what he says about not letting your past define you. I know I've done this myself in the past, you know, I've looked at my failures. And made them such a part of who I saw myself as until I started dropping that and then making those failures battle scars to be proud of because they forged who I am today. And looking at the scars that Hank earned on his journey, I mean, those are, he went through some stuff that could have broken him, broken anyone. And how that experience has led him to where he is now. That's a beautiful reminder that the challenges and the failures that we face are really the gifts that drive us forward and forge our growth and our greatness. So that's something to remember when things look their darkest. Tap into your warrior, get into that courage and slay that darkness because it's part of what's going to lead you to King. Well, all right, guys, that's it for this episode. I want to thank Hank McLarity for joining us today for being real and for being honest and telling us the story of his journey. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next time.